Hello, and welcome to Stairway to ATJ, the CBA podcast that deals with all things access to justice. We see access to justice as encompassing all efforts to provide people the opportunity to use the justice system when they are in need of a legal remedy. Hi, I'm Mia Kotnick, the Access to Justice Program Manager for the Colorado Bar Association. And I'm Anthony Pereira, a Program Coordinator for Metro Volunteer Lawyers, which is the pro bono arm of the Denver Bar Association. Thank you for joining us on a trek up the stairway to ATJ. Today, we will be discussing racial diversity. We will be discussing how diversity and access to justice are interrelated. We'll explore the systemic barriers to the justice system, and we will dive into how each of us can do the work in our efforts to become more anti-racist. We're gonna have Carrie DeGenero from the Colorado Eviction Defense Fund in our pro bono corner. We're gonna feature a couple great interviews with Jess Jones, a a private criminal defense attorney, and Allison Neswood from the Colorado Center for Law and Policy. And then in our Eyes to ATJ segment, we're gonna discuss issues regarding access to justice, um, news and hot topics from Colorado and around the world. Now, let's hear from Carrie DeGenero with the COVID-19 Eviction Defense Project in our Pro Bono Corner. The Pro Bono Corner gives us a chance to hear about pro bono opportunities and programs from every corner of the state addressing access to justice issues. If you would like to be featured, please email us at atjpodcast at cobar.org. So Carrie, can you tell us a little bit about your program? Sure. So the COVID-19 Eviction Defense Project got started in March, um, right at the beginning of the pandemic, and we've grown a ton since then. So we do a few different things. Uh, I'm generally involved in the legal services side of things. And so in that regard, we recruit uh, volunteer attorneys to help tenants facing eviction And so what we do is they fill out an intake form and this is available to tenants statewide and attorneys statewide as well. And they'll fill out an intake form and we do a pretty comprehensive intake with them and then determine whether they would benefit from full representation or just advice and negotiating uh, or in, in the recent context of the eviction moratoriums that are in effect, we tell them how to claim protection under those. And we do have a few different sides as well where we organize a fund, a housing stability fund um, that can help tenants stay housed if they meet certain criteria. And we also have sort of a legislative policy wing. So that's us in a nutshell. Did I miss anything? No, it sounds like you're attacking the problem from multiple angles, Um, creating a fund and, and providing representation when necessary and giving advice so people are aware of their rights. Absolutely. And our goal is always to avoid court, but we also hope to guide pro se or represented litigants through court if that's not possible to avoid. Can you share with us a recent success story that your program has had? Sure. Uh, So recently, with the passing of the governor's eviction moratorium, we have been able to get out to all of our clients information about how to claim protection. And so we had one client go to court last week and she was able to present the uh, 
declaration that you need to sign before the court. This was in Larimer County, and we had the court just end her proceedings. So she's protected through the end of the moratorium. That's a little bit easy. So I will also say that one of our volunteer attorneys reached a really great repayment agreement to avoid a client going to court at all. So those are always our most exciting success stories when nobody has to go to court and the negotiations work. And how can our listeners get involved and kind of what support uh, does your program need from attorneys here in Colorado? Absolutely. So we are always uh, interested in working with attorneys who would like to help us out. Now, we have a really great intake team. So if folks are interested in just doing intake and providing that initial uh, review with clients, then that's always an option. Um, We've had some great folks who will be likely leaving us in the new year. And for anyone else who wants to get some experience in court or some experience negotiating, uh, anyone interested can just go to cedproject.org and fill out an intake form. And likely it will be me that reaches out to you to discuss how you want to be involved and um, generally how how we can get you trained up. And we, we provide support throughout proceedings when attorneys take cases. But there's a variety of different ways to get involved, and I can, I can talk to anyone interested about how they can organize that. And I will say I uh, took a negotiation case uh, from Carrie, and it was a wonderful experience, um, and I highly recommend uh, working with her and the COVID-19 Eviction Defense Project. And we thank you, Mia. And also when you joined, we didn't have, we were still in the early stages. And so we have even more robust support for attorneys now, if anyone's wondering. That's wonderful to hear. It sounds like it's really easy to get involved. Um, Just visit the website and fill out the form and Carrie will probably be reaching out to you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, everyone. Thank you for joining us. All right, so today we are going to have some great guests, Jess and Allison. Uh, They can help enlighten us about how access to justice and diversity, equity, inclusivity are related to each other. We will also discuss the systemic barriers Coloradans of color face accessing the justice system. And we'll look at promising efforts to address racial inequities. We may be asking some hard questions today in hopes that we can listen, learn, and maybe even unlearn. First, I would like to introduce you to Jess Jones. Jess is a criminal defense attorney with 13 years of trial experience. She is also a core organizer for the Colorado chapter of the National Lawyers Guild. She has co-led legal defense efforts for Denver protesters during the current Black Lives Matter movement uprising and during the 2008 DNC um, and during Occupy Denver and more. Jess, can you tell us a little bit about the National Lawyers Guild of Colorado and your work with them? Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Um, The National Lawyers Guild is a national lawyers organization that was founded um, in 1937, and it was the first lawyers organization that was racially integrated. And that is our roots and our foundations moving forward throughout the recent decades. Here in Colorado, our chapter is really focused on mass defense efforts. And that really encompasses providing legal support to protesters when they're arrested, but also action planning to try to avoid arrest or to be smart about what the risks may be. 
We present movement security workshops. We train legal observers to watch police officers at actions. And then, as you mentioned, we then try to match arrested protesters with defense attorneys. And that's the main focus of our chapter, but the National Lawyers Guild as a national organization takes on immigration, labor issues, police accountability, environmental justice. So it is very rare, very varied in the issues that we take on. Thank you, Jess. We also had the pleasure to interview Allison Neswood. Allison is the Deputy Director of Strategic Priorities at the Colorado Center of, of, on Law and Policy. And that's a statewide anti-poverty policy organization based in Denver. In her position, she advances systemic changes that improve access to quality health care and other basic needs. She specializes in hospital accountability, health insurance affordability, equity in administration of public programs, and movement, lawyer, movement lawyering strategies. Allison got her bachelor's in political science from Yale and her JD at Columbia and currently sits on a few boards as well, including the Chase Board, Chase being Colorado Healthcare Affordability and Sustainability Enterprise, the Board of uh, Denver Indian Health and Family Services, and the Board of Center for Health and Progress. Did I miss anything, Allison? No, you didn't. And thank you very much for having me here today. I'm also excited for this conversation. Great. Well, let's jump right in. Um, this question is to both of you. In a sentence or two, can you tell us what access to justice means to you? Sure. I think in short, um, access to justice is the ability to enforce or protect one's legal rights. Um, and there are sort of key elements to that capacity. It includes access to information, um, which is, you know, an individual has to know that they have a legally enforceable right in, in a given circumstance. Um, it also includes access to appropriate legal assistance and access is about, you know, affordability. It's about timeliness um, of that legal help. Um, and then also access to a fair and efficient court or other process for um, adjudicating or resolving um, the issue. <clears throat> and an important aspect of that last prong is um, really belief in fairness of the process. And so for there to be um, a functioning um, justice system in a community, the community really needs to believe that that system is there and um, is supposed to work for them. I just think that's such a good segue because when I think of access to justice, my first question is what is justice? And so what Allison was just talking about, that fairness of the process, I think that that's such an important aspect of this idea of access to justice. Justice to me is more than just what the laws say. Justice can, can be restorative. It can be focused on a community or a whole um, and not just one person in a legal circumstance, but it's certainly part of all of that. And I also think it's really important to get um, to look more closely at that concept of access. You know, I said access three times, um, but it can, there are various things that impact access, especially for low-income uh, people. Um, you know, there's cost, which it can include attorney's costs and court costs, but also the cost of taking time off work if that's needed to find or consult with an attorney or time or uh, the cost of childcare if you need that when you're meeting with an attorney or going to court, the cost of transportation, the cost of telephone calls, um, all of those um, things can be barriers. Um, information barriers can also be exacerbated for low-income populations who may not have had um, access to uh, as much education 
or people in their network that know attorneys or that understand how to navigate systems. Um, in addition, groups that experience bias and racism at every mm -hmm. turn are really less likely to feel like they have rights or that the system should work for them. Um, and so these barriers are deeply ingrained structural issues that prevent access to justice, especially for low-income people of color. And right on topic with that, when you mentioned barriers, um, we here at Stairway to ATJ kind of focus on that access to justice. Um, I mean, it's in our title, ATJ. <laughs> um, and diversity, equity, inclusivity. Um, could you guys speak a little bit more about how diversity relates to access to justice in your experience? I think one of the things that Allison mentioned too about lower income communities or communities of color and their ability to have that information to access justice or have the time and ability to access justice is absolutely critical. And I think also because of those barriers that Allison flagged, many of those low income communities and communities of color actually don't access the same justice system that we think of in courts. They often resolve their issues among their community. They don't necessarily turn to the police and law enforcement because, as Allison mentioned, they don't have that faith in the fairness of the system. Mm -hmm. And so I do believe that the issues of equity and diversity, inclusivity, go to all of those issues and that different communities have a different definition of what justice is and how justice is achieved. And I think it's really important to be mindful of that. Yeah, definitely agree with those points. And um, I, I think I would go back to the, a little bit about the definitions of each term. So, you know, definitely, sorry, diversity is about who's in the room, right? Like if no one you come into contact with in the justice system looks like you, I think you're less likely to encounter someone who understands your life experience um, or this, sort of what, what's going on in, in the communities in which you live. Um, and also you're less likely to feel like you had a fair shake in the process. And so I think that some of the diversity issues really contribute to what Jess is talking about where communities of color will, will pursue sort of other, other routes and the justice system will look very different in terms of what they access. Um, inclusion is about recognizing and valuing the contributions of everybody in the room. So while diversity can help people feel like their experience is represented in the justice system, um, the value of diversity will be limited or erased if certain voices are ignored or marginalized, and unable to really impact how the process works. Um, equity is uh, about acknowledging the impacts of historical oppression and ongoing discrimination against certain groups and actively working to counter the adverse outcomes members of those groups experience because of that oppression and discrimination. Um, so a focus on equity is essential because structural racism and other forms of oppression are the root causes of lack of access to justice. Um, so while it's important, you know, creating access to justice isn't just about changing the face of the justice system by increasing diversity and hearing diverse voices, um, that structural change is necessary as well. Otherwise, the system will continue to operate um, to reinforce inequities. So I agree. And I really like, um, Allison, how you broke down the definitions of those three concepts. As a criminal defense attorney, 
my clients have access to me because they're now my clients. And so sometimes I don't always have the opportunity to push back on the system because I'm already part of the system. And I think the system is broken and flawed. And so I don't necessarily hold myself out as the savior of the system. I recognize I'm part of it and I'm a cog in it. And sometimes that means I perpetuate those inequalities. And um, that's, um, I'm, I'm mindful of that, that we have different roles to play. While we're discussing the roles um, you play, you both are um, licensed attorneys, but you also um, both have mentioned that sometimes you wear the hat of an organizer. Can you talk a little bit about that role and maybe some of the uh, principles and values that guide your work um, as an organizer? I certainly have had quite a bit of organizing experience this summer with all of the protests that have been going on, which is so exciting. I think that when I'm an organizer, for me personally, I take my attorney hat off. I don't represent one person. I don't zealously advocate for one individual in a legal problem. I look out for the health of the whole. I look out for the big picture of the movement, of the actions of the activists. And so as an organizer, I'm able to kind of talk about more than just being in the system, but talking more about um, being outside of the system and providing support for that and saying, okay, let's have a legal line where we can answer questions and calls. Let's create a network of attorneys that could represent. Let's look out for how these protesters are gonna move through this movement to continue to advocate for social change. And that's different than putting on my attorney hat and representing zealously one client's specific needs. I do agree that the, um, you know, the role of the organizer does look very different from sort of the traditional legal practice. Um, of, <clears throat> but I also think that, um, you know, organizing is very critical or found, foundation or fundamental to social change um, work. And so there's a really powerful role that attorneys can play in putting these social movements and organizing efforts at the center of, of the work that they do and the deployment of um, sort of the legal training that we, that we have. Um, and so I think when, uh, you know, when I think about my relationship to organizing, it's really about center, centering some of those foundational concepts to organizing that, you know, community should be driving change and that um, we want to focus on shifting power from, you know, sort of more institutional um, wealth rooted power to community power and that, um, you know, our communities that, and that when our communities are working together um, to, to take control and drive change, that's when um, power shifts and that's when change is lasting and sustainable. Um, and I think this idea, this focus on power is really useful not only because it results in systems change, because it act, not only because it results in, in, in systems change, but also because um, you know, power is a social determinant of health. The ability to impact what your communities look like, what your communities have access to, um, that uh, really um, determines health outcomes for, for folks and, and their ability to, to thrive and be financially successful. Yeah. It seeing you guys work and seeing, seeing what you guys are trying to, to accomplish, I'm excited for the future and excited for change to happen. Um, and Jess, you mentioned wearing multiple kind of hats. Um, and when you're wearing your attorney hat, um, do you think that an attorney should look like their client? I know it's a kind of a weird question, but in other words, is it important for an attorney to have a shared culture or set of experiences as their clients in their communities? 
or is there a benefit to being of the same race or creed or it, should they look like them? Yeah, I certainly think that there's a benefit to having a shared experience with your clients and having a foundation. I believe that more than liking your defense attorney, you need to have faith and trust in your defense attorney. And part of having that faith and confidence in them is understanding who they are and knowing that they support you and what you have gone through. And sometimes having an attorney that looks like you can give you that automatic faith and trust. Sometimes it doesn't. And so I do think it's beneficial and helpful, but I don't think it's necessary because what is more important is that faith and trust and confidence that your attorney is going to advocate for you. One of the ways to get there is to say, I know your world. I've walked in your shoes. I've, I've um, struggled with some of the things that you have struggled with because I have the same color skin as you, but that's not necessary. There are other ways to show empathy. There are other ways to have compassion. There are other ways to get to know your client and to build that trust and faith in your ability to represent them. So it helps, but it's not critical in my opinion. Um, so both of you work in uh, def very different um, areas of the law. Can you kind of give us a lay of the land of what are the big issues you see for your clients of um, color um, in each of your respective areas? I'll start with that one and then Jess can go ahead and jump in. And again, you know, my, my work is very systems focused. We don't, we do some, but not a lot of um, direct representation. Um, but as a healthcare and public benefits attorney, access to justice or the ability to enforce or protect your, your legal rights is the ability to apply for public programs and to receive the benefits that you are legally entitled to, that you're entitled to under the law. So in this area, um, I, I think the concept of access to justice is, is larger than maybe what most people automatically think of. Um, it includes administrative burden um, and poorly administered, or the issues include um, administrative burden and poorly administered civil due process protections. Um, so administrative burdens include things like you know, a confusing application process, burdensome paperwork requirements, and the unavailability of assistance with this confusing process, especially culturally competent assistance or assistance in your primary language. Um, and these administrative burdens come with um, learning costs, compliance costs, and psychological costs. Um, so learning costs include the time and energy it takes to learn the rules and program requirements. Um, compliance costs include the time and money, going back to what I was talking about before, for things like transportation, um, time off work, childcare, um, cost of using a telephone. Um, those costs it takes to comply with application requirements. And then psychological costs include the impacts of stigma. There's still a lot of stigma around the use of public benefits in our society. Um, judgment, the impact of stress and confusion, and those sort of psychological um, um, harms that come from trying to deal with and navigate this process just to ask, access basic needs. And all of these things create barriers for people attempting to access programs that they're legally entitled to. Um, and they're especially cute for people with disabilities, people targeted by racism, people who don't speak English, and people uh, facing poverty. And then just real quick, um, due process is another important issue. Um, it requires that people receive you know, notice and an opportunity to be heard when they're denied or terminated from programs like Medicaid or SNAP. But our state, you know, in Colorado, we've had really persistent problems with these basic elements of due process. 
For example, um, while our state agencies have done a lot of work to improve uh, public benefit notices, um, clients continue to receive notices that are incorrect, that include contradictory information, um, that are incomprehensible, and um, that are inadequately translated um, when translation is required. And so this is largely, this is largely the result of underinvestment and a problem-ridden public benefits computer system. And it really has huge implications for the ability of people um, to access justice around their um, public benefit programs. I think for me, when I work in the criminal justice system and being day in, day out in the courtrooms, it is just undeniable to see the overrepresentation of minorities, especially here in Colorado, where there is a, a rather large white population. And yet in our courtrooms, um, we see a lot more people of color. I think that it circles up with the issues that we were talking about earlier and that faith and confidence in a system that's already flawed. I'm very aware that communities of color engage in um, conflict resolution that is not with the courts. And that means that when they are in the courtroom, it's unfamiliar, it's unusual, it's uncomfortable, it's painful sometimes, especially because when they think about their communities, there are other ways to resolve problems that are less overwhelming. And I think that that, um, that gap in the faith and confidence in how you see your family and your community and your neighbors resolve problems versus the faith and confidence in how you see a judge resolve a problem or a prosecutor resolve a problem, that gap is very significant when we talk about communities of color. And I think it's something that we really do need to address in our criminal justice system because as we talked about earlier, if there's not faith that justice is achieved, the system is broken. So while we're all familiar with the symbolism of a blind lady justice, in your work and experience, is justice blind? For me, I think justice is not blind. And I think about the reason is because our justice system, our legal system is man-made and people aren't blind. And so I believe that our justice system is not aspirational. It is not inspirational. It is not ideal. Our justice system should be based in reality. Our society is not colorblind. Racial injustice, inequality is real. And if our legal system doesn't acknowledge that, then our legal system isn't based on reality. And I think we often think of the law as being aspirational, but the law is man-made and it should reflect reality. Yeah, thanks for that, Jess. And I really agree with that. And I actually thought of this question as you know, whether the justice system should be blind. And I think theoretically, if we could wipe the slate clean and start over, I would definitely say yes, like race shouldn't be considered at all. I think the problem in this country, as Jess was saying, is that we're at a point where centuries of policy decisions and cultural norms have created vastly unequal playing field. Um, so in this context, treating everyone the same will likely reinforce existing inequities along lines of disability, race, ethnicity, and other characteristics. Um, and I don't think this means that laws should be applied to unfairly advantaged, previously disadvantaged groups. Um, but I think we do need to do intentional work as a legal community to educate Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities about their legal rights, and about how they can access legal assistance, and really target their communities with access to legal assistance. 
Um, we also need to ensure that actors throughout the criminal justice system are trained to identify and disrupt their assumptions of, and biases when they are dealing with people of color. And so it may sound like a bit of a paradox, but um, I think that to build a legal system that is truly blind in this country, we need to pay attention to race, or rather to racism in its individual institutional and structural forms, um, and actively work to dismantle the inequities that create um, unequal opportunities for people based on their perceived racial identity. So that's that equity again, um, coming back in. Sometimes all of the uh, problems around racial disparities and systemic and uh, structural racism seem very overwhelming. Um, how do you keep doing the work, you know, and how do you stay motivated? I've been telling this story recently because I've needed a little bit of extra encouragement and motivation. Um, I attended a training a few weeks back and there was a panel of minority groups working towards equality across the country and across the world. So there was a Palestinian woman, an indigenous woman, a young black man uh, from across the world. and. The indigenous woman was sharing how we all know that stories of struggle and stories of minority groups working towards equality and justice usually end with, and then they gave up. Mm -hmm. And the whole panel smiled and snickered and shook their heads and said, no, of course not. That's never how the story ends. It's never that, and then we give up. We always continue to fight. Um, we always continue to fight. What choice do we have but to work towards equality and justice? And remembering that we have been doing this work for centuries sometimes feels overwhelming, but also knowing that we've been doing this work for centuries means that we can continue to do it. I think that is just such a beautiful answer. And, and the um, I think feeling is, is something that I share and I'll also um, you know, share a story. I was at a conference as well and listening to a speaker talk about um, the um, Water is Life movement or no, no DAPL, no Dakota Access Pipeline movement in South Dakota to prevent the laying of the pipeline there. And he said that um, one thing he learned was that during the uh, full duration of that several months long um, protest movement, the suicide rate on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation dropped to zero. Um, sorry, it's, you know, it's emotional, but I think it's just an indication that um, when you fight hard fights, um, a lot of times you find out what makes you and your community strong. Um, you find your allies, you find um, your shared values and your shared purpose, and that uh, really brings a lot of, of life and joy and meaning um, and energy to the life that you're living. And so that's very much a part of something that I hold on to as I, as I do this work and as I feel tired and as I feel overwhelmed, um, I think I'm also sort of making myself stronger and building the relationships that are gonna sort of sustain me and my family and my community um, through, through time. So. Well, let's stay positive. Um, and so now that we have some tips as far as um, sticking to the work and things like that. So what efforts are you aware of that are making an impact and, and are looking promising? I think that it is promising that we have had such a sustained uprising all summer and into the fall. Mm -hmm. 
in doing this work and kind of keeping my pulse on the movement, I have seen that that kind of activism has shifted to other areas. And so when the protests were originally about Black Lives Matter, that shifted into additional other issues of racial justice and police accountability, that shifted into housing and homelessness, eviction defense, and the, the homeless sweeps that are going on here in Denver. So that passion and energy and social awareness has shifted into more passion and more energy and more social awareness and that is very encouraging and super exciting um, movements to me want to grow up into real social change they don't want to stay on the ground they don't want to stay with protests and actions we want to actually move to change that is sustained and so this current moment and the momentum that we have seen all through the summer and into the fall to me is this movement starting to grow up and push into actual social change that is going to be in our communities in our policies in our laws in our statutes um, it takes time just like you can't grow up overnight um, movements can't grow up overnight either but i think that this is a moment to see how um, this movement is starting to grow up into actual sustained social change and i'm excited by that it takes time though yeah, thank you for that, Jess. My answer is really similar to that. I mean, I think um, a real prevalence of sort of community-driven or organizing-driven um, policy change is um, not only leading to policy wins that create a fairer playing field in, in some cases, you know, the, um, you know, changes or increases to um, mobile home or the rights of mobile home park residents and tenants' rights in the state and, um, you know, the passage of pay family leave through the ballot. Um, you know, these, these policy wins are really community-driven and they're leading to a fairer playing field for, for folks. But in addition to that, I think, you know, in, involvement of the community in these social change processes means that community has more information about what their legal rights are and they're seeing themselves reflected more in the policies and, and laws and institutions that sort of govern our society and community. And I think all of those things, you know, when we talk, we were talking earlier about the sort of barriers to um, access to justice, they include things like, yeah, I don't know what the process is, or I don't know what my legal rights are, or this process isn't for me or people who look like me or my community. But as we're sort of doing social change work together, driven by community, we can really start to shift the foundations of that narrative so that people um, um, you know, really feel like this system is supposed to work for them too. Great. Thank you for uh, those inspiring answers. And uh, just to wrap up here, can you each share um, a story about a personal success um, you've had in the work? Sure. I think I'll, I'll start on this one. Um, something that comes to mind is, um, you know, we as an organization, we're part of a um, sort of coalition or um, uh, partnership effort to what we call build the field of health equity advocacy in Colorado and that was really about resourcing different groups in the community um, with uh, knowledge with um, uh, other resources around how to how to do policy work um, that impacts health equity in their communities um, and one of the um, areas where we focused was around sort of doing policy advocacy trainings for community groups. Um, and, and we tried to make sure that um, we um, 
that there was language access so that people who didn't speak English could also partake in those opportunities and, and learn and participate in their government as well. And that led up to a um, sort of um, uh, legislative um, trip uh, for our group and um, a couple women who um, who are promotoras in their community and you know, largely focus on sort of educating their community around health access um, were trained on a, a policy issue around renters rights and um, spoke with a member of our legislature in Spanish and really felt like they were able to um, you know, sort of share their story and share their experience with their legislature in the language of their heart. Um, and when they were telling this story, it, they felt really um, included and and um, and powerful in a way that um, they said they hadn't before. And and, um, and so that was just something that sort of made me really emotional and um, is kind of the reason we do this, this work, I think. You got both diversity and uh, inclusivity in that one. Um... Hopefully it leads to some equity. I think for myself, I have been, um, like all of us, isolated. <laughs> and so I've been so impressed and grateful for the fact that through my organizing efforts this summer, I have a whole new community of support and friends that I didn't get to know um, and I didn't have had the opportunity to get to know. And it's so funny to me that these are people now that are very important to me. I text and talk with them every day when I've had some really rough moments during the summer, they've brought me meals and left them on my doorstep um, and sent me cards of encouragement. And they're friends that I've never had a meal with or shared a beer with. I, I, I only met them in the course of this pandemic and through the work of organizing. And yet, um, as Allison was sharing, that community building among attorneys and among organizers is really important and is encouraging and it keeps me going in this work. And so I, I think of that as a success story in that I've just been able to be connected with others who care and want to do this work and want to lead towards um, social change, grow that kind of social change up. And one of the things that I think is incredibly successful and mentions some of the issues we've been talking about is that at the beginning of the summer, a group of attorneys said they wanted to get involved. They wanted to show up at the protest and support what was happening. And listening to how that conversation was developing made me a little bit uncomfortable as the attorneys in their suits and ties and um, saving the day and showing up um, to support. And in having some tough and honest conversations, a smaller group of attorneys came together and said, yeah, we wanna to listen to these issues. We wanna bring in these other voices. And now when I have meetings with this group of attorneys, there are six other women of color attorneys that I've never gotten to know and meet. We, we are actually fairly rare. And um, here we all brought together because of this work and because of this activism and because of a really difficult conversation and saying, if you are gonna be attorneys of a legal system that is frankly oppressing black people, we need to be thoughtful about how we show up and the kind of support that we can bring. And you need to bring in voices of people of color. And these other attorneys said, you're right, and let's do that. And then I got to meet more attorneys of color and I got to meet more attorneys who are caring about activism and wanting to do social movement and social change in more than just in the courtroom and more than just through litigation. And it's been very encouraging and very cool and sustains this work going forward. And I, I don't know if that qualifies as a success story, but to me, it was um, 
it to me has been very meaningful work and yeah, I'm very grateful for those new relationships. Yeah, absolutely. It's a success story coming together, even though you're six feet apart. I, I really like that. Well, I just want to thank both of you um, from the bottom of my heart. This has been an incredible conversation. Um, I feel inspired, enlightened. I've learned a lot. I've unlearned a little bit. And um, I just could not um, hope for a more rich uh, conversation. So thank you. Well, thank you for having us. It was a delight to get to know Allison through this and the two of you and the work that you're doing. This was a wonderful conversation. And that is where we bring in new change and learn and unlearn. <laughs> Same. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and I really enjoyed the conversation with all of you. Next up is Eyes on ATJ. In this segment, we highlight the most important and enduring issues affecting access to justice in Colorado, the United States, and internationally. That's right. Let's keep our eyes on the prize. But if you see anything that you want us to talk about, shoot us an email at atjpodcast at cobar.org. Up first is a topic that several judges and magistrates have already spoken out about um, somewhat recently, and that is diversity on the bench. A lack of diversity amongst our judicial officers is a real issue that needs to be examined and addressed. But Anthony, this is actually an issue we are addressing. The CBA and the Colorado Judicial Institute established a diversity on the bench initiative made up of 18 attorneys, CBA staff, and judicial officers. They're coming up with an action plan to address this issue specifically. That's really good to hear. Um, our listeners may have seen um, this issue in the news as well. I know the Honorable Gary Jackson and the Honorable Juan Villasenor um, have spoken out about uh, diversity on the bench. Um, the articles I read said that out of 196 judges, there are only 15 Latino and five black judges. Also, there are zero black judges out of the 29 Court of Appeals judges. Well, those numbers are stark, but it's getting better. Governor uh, Jared Polis has appointed five black female judges, which is more than all of his 42 predecessors combined. That being said, we definitely still have work to do. That's why I appreciate you, Mia. You always stay positive. <laughs> Thanks, Anthony. So what else is going on? Not to be a downer again, but COVID is adversely affecting minorities. Yeah, I read about that over the last few months. Tell me more. Yeah, in fact, the CDC lists six factors that help determine the likely of, uh, likelihood of a person that will get COVID and how bad it will be for them. Those six factors are discrimination, healthcare ac access, occupation, education, income, and housing. And a lot of these make sense, like housing and healthcare access. But I really hate to see that discrimination is amongst those. Yeah, I agree. So how bad is the disparity? Well, compared to, let's say, a white community, the American Indian, Black, and Hispanic individuals all have at least 2.6 times more likely to get COVID. The ACLU also wrote an article about this, basically saying they weren't surprised. They called for some immediate actions that could function as band-aids, you know, to address the problem, but they also acknowledged the need for meaningful and sustainable protections that address the pervasive racial injustices at the federal, state, and local levels. I do encourage our listeners to try and um, remain sympathetic and understanding through these times. I also hope all of our listeners are staying safe and staying healthy as well. So Mia, give me something good. Well, there is one thing we wanted to talk about that 
and that is the um, American Bar Association's 21-Day Racial Equity Challenge. Um, Anthony, I know you've started this challenge. What is it? So it's a challenge where you each day read an article, listen to a podcast, or do something. Um, and the ABA has kind of created a 21-day syllabus, and each day there's a new article, a new new topic to cover. Um, and it's supposed to it's focused on the Black um, community's uh, access to justice and access to uh, racial inequality. Um, but a lot of the things can be applied to other races and other uh, creeds and other um, nationalities as well. Yeah, I've had... Um... I've gotten to day four of the syllabus and I really appreciate it because of the diversity of, um, you know, media you get to interact with. Um, sometimes it's a podcast, sometimes it's a TED talk. Um, and it's really great to just hear different perspectives on really important issues like reparations and um, history of racial inequities in this country, you know, dating back to 1619. Um, so I think um, this is a really great curated uh, set of documents that can really uh, guide you in your efforts towards becoming more anti-racist. Yeah, it's very um, focused, very um, educational, and very enlightening. I agree. And I think the coolest thing about the way we're engaging with it um, at the Colorado Bar Association is that we're doing it as a group. So we have accountability buddies. Anthony's one of mine. It's awesome. Um, but we're also addressing it as an organization. And that's been a really amazing um, opportunity. It was really nice of you to kind of pull the curtain um, and give our listeners a view behind the scenes as far as what we're doing at the CBA. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Stairway to ADJ. Be sure to check out our other podcasts offered by the CBA. And I'm Anthony Pereira. Be good, everyone. And Mia Kotnick, signing off. Keep climbing, stay curious, and come volunteer with us.